uh, there's a study done by um, CIO magazines. It's four years old now, but you know, still relevant around the digital transformation failure. And I, I don't think it was exclusive to banks, but the number one reason that transformation fail, according to the study, was that they the organization didn't actually know what digital transformation was. And I bring that up as a way of sort of what you just said about, you know, the importance of knowing where you're going. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human and another wonderful guest who's going to impart lots of wisdom about the world of transformation and specifically the world of transformation within the financial industry. With me today is a friend, Bob Contry. Bob and I met uh, four years ago or so at the Singapore FinTech Festival and have stayed in contact since. Bob is the global financial services leader for Deloitte Global. And I'll let Bob explain what Deloitte Global is, but but the financial service component of it oversees um, a range of different components, audit, assurance, tax, legal, consulting, financial advisory, and, and risk advisory. And Bob, as the as the global service leader, I, I and we'll learn more, oversees some 35,000 people in over 40 different countries, which is just a crazy, crazy number of people in a crazy number of countries. Part of the reason why I wanted to have Bob on the show today, besides the fact that he's a friend of mine and he's a wise person, is for those who have been following this, the recent transition within in the show itself, is, is the, the newfound focus for 2022 is on three industries, finance or banking, uh, healthcare, and education. And my rationale for that is because I believe those are the cornerstone industries, the pillar industries that determine the future of the world. And that if we can help those industries and the leaders of those industries think differently, act differently, behave differently, lead differently, then those industries as a consequence will change. And in their change, they will serve the people they serve better. And so um, that's the rationale for all that. So, Bob, welcome to the show. 
Yep. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Just let's just start with a little bit about your role and also a little bit about Deloitte's work in, in the banking sector and the finance uh, space. Chris, um, let me give you a little bit of background first. You mentioned Deloitte Global. So, so Deloitte and Touche, or Deloitte as we're known, is the largest professional services firm in the world. We have um, over 300,000 employees globally. Um, and um, I have the privileged position to lead the financial services industry practice globally, um, which, as you said, covers a broad range of services. It also covers banking and capital markets, insurance, investment and asset management and real estate. So all of our services to the financial services industry uh, globally. And that obviously gives me a pretty unique platform to see what's going on in the industry. I spend most of my time speaking with our practice leaders around the world and with senior clients who are leading financial institutions all over the world, boards and executives, to help understand what their key issues are and how Deloitte, through our many services and capabilities, can better support them and serve them and and help them improve their businesses. So um, I like to think I have a a pretty unique position um, to understand the big issues that are happening across the industry on a global basis and, again, uh, bring those insights to our clients and and help them uh, determine how they need to improve their business. So that's kind of a broad background. Um, I would say what we're seeing in the industry today is the, is we're starting a new wave of transformation. And I know transformation is a major topic for today's discussion. You know, coming out of the financial crisis, we went through a significant, this is in the 2009, 10, 11, 12 timeframe, we went through a major transformation of the financial services industry. And that was largely driven by regulatory requirements that were being imposed on the industry coming out of the financial crisis. And now we are in the early stages of a new transformation that is all about leveraging technology and and how to um, take advantage of the technological advances that are happening every day and bring them to bear in the financial industry. Um, And so that's really where we are spending most of our time these days with our clients is helping them understand, uh, prepare for, and start to execute on transformations to again, leverage technology. So uh, that's probably the biggest uh, opportunity in the marketplace now and the biggest focus for, for most of our clients on a global basis. Let me ask you a couple of questions there. Is the motivation a cost reduction motive? Like what, what is the sort of contextual motivation for the technological transformation prioritization? <laughs> you know, like what's what's under underpinning the 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 full on, you know, uh, uh, um, massive amounts. I mean, I've, I've, re- I've read statistics, multi trillions of dollars being spent on the, on the task. What's, 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 what's motivating that? It's across the board. So obviously there are productivity and cost opportunities. And so many, many, many of the early use cases as people started to think about new technologies, whether it was AI or blockchain or whatever the case may be, were about productivity and cost reduction. But now it's, it's becoming much broader than that. It's about how do you leverage data to sell to clients more effectively or to give clients products they want or serve, it, serve your clients more effectively. So it's, it's about the cost side of the equation as well as the revenue side of the equation, so to speak, and the, and the client service side of the equation. So it's, it's, it's all over the board. And I, I would say in, in many cases, it's more about 
the service revenue market competitiveness side than it is the mm-hmm. cost side. I mean, we were talking earlier about the, the idea that, you know, the banking, healthcare, and education industries, the pillars of our society, have uh, have a perception of being legacy, slow-moving, averse to change. You know, they've all been sort of holding on to a business model for decades. How how are you seeing that if if that is if that perception is moderately true, how does that sort of line up with this this new focus and even fixation on transformation like how do those two ideas or ways go together i actually think that's one of the biggest challenges so if you wanted to talk about impediments um you know we we issued a a series of papers with the iif uh, international institute of finance over the last couple years that talked about digital transformation and I think the second one talks specifically about impediments or what were the biggest drags on digital transformation and financial services. And, and two of the biggest issues are legacy, legacy everything, right? Which is legacy culture, legacy skill sets, legacy technology, changing everything about an organization to be able to adapt to the, the, the um, opportunities created by these new technologies. And the second big bucket that is is an impediment or drag on change is, I'll call it short-term versus long-term focus, is the need to constantly show short-term quarterly returns to manage your board expectations, your shareholder expectations, your Wall Street expectations, and how to balance those against the need to make significant fundamental investments in your business that are going to pay off over a long period of time that don't always contribute to quarterly gains or quarterly profits over the next year. And so the long-term, short-term balancing act, and then all aspects of legacy are are absolutely the two biggest drags on, on companies figuring out how to take advantage of this technology transformation. You know, on the short-term, long-term thing, it reminds me of many years ago. I was I was consulting with Polaroid Corporation. Remember Polaroid? Yep. And sure. and it was right around the time that digital imaging was rearing its head. And and I'm in a meeting with a bunch of executives, and we're talking about what are we going to do about digital imaging? And I'm like, well, fundamentally, you know, we're talking about transforming the business from a silver halide manufacturing company to a software company. And and they're like, well. Uh, we can't, you know, we, we, we got shareholders, like we got, we got to deliver the, you know, like we, and cause the other part of it, which they didn't want to hear is, is my theory was you're, you're probably going to have to get smaller before you get bigger. Like you like the classic Xerox story, right? right. Talk about, they, they didn't want to realize the copying was going away. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so on the legacy stuff, I mean, I think, and again, for the listeners, this is, this is, this is common to lots of industries and, you know, if your child is in school right now, there's it's likely that he or she is is in a legacy institution with legacy technologies and legacy beliefs and legacy legacy processes. So, so, so it applies to sort of every aspect of our society today. Much of it is legacy. As in in Deloitte's work or your work, Bob, specifically with with clients. How do you even begin to sort of peel the onion on the legacy stuff, like? Like, is there a, is there a, 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 a pecking order? Not a pecking order. Is, is there sort of, do you start here and then go here? Or how do you like skin the, skin the cat? 
there's a couple different pieces to it. As we said, there's there's a, there's a human piece to it, right? Which is how do you think about culture and and retraining and reskilling of people and performance management to incent people to go into a different. So there's a whole human side to it. There's a there's a technology very specific technology roadmap legacy piece to it, which is how do you get from point A to point B and decommission, you know, decades of technology that's been um, um, invested in for you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and for, for you know, tens and 20, 20 years in many organizations. So um, I think there's a roadmap piece to it, which is understanding where you're trying to go and starting to put in place different uh, metrics, if you will, that start to um, push people or performance management systems that push people towards thinking differently. Um, I think the other part is, is to start to think about how you're going to react to this new environment. Um, one of the big things that we're, we talk with our clients a lot about is the fact that legacy business constructs are not going to necessarily work in the future. So the notion that you're going to be able to maintain all of the IT technology skills in your legacy organization that are going to allow you to stay current with the pace of technology change is probably not a, not a very realistic objective. And so a big part of, of the strategy for transformation for many organizations is how are they starting to partner? How are they starting to participate in ecosystems? How are they starting to participate with fintechs and big tech companies? So, how, what, what's the what's the ecosystem that they're creating and they're participating in that's going to allow them to get access to the skills they're going to need? So, part of this is reskilling your existing workforce, but another part of it is thinking differently about how you um, get access to skills and then how you leverage those skills for the future. So, I, th I think it's really about understanding where you're trying to go as an organization, fighting it off in pieces, um, and then thinking about different business models that are going to allow you to get access to different types of resources and different types of skills that are going to allow you to be successful going forward. Yeah, I love that. A couple of comments there. One is, one is uh, there's a study done by um, CIO magazines. It's four years old now, but you know, still relevant around the digital transformation failure. And I, I don't think it was exclusive to banks, but the number one reason that transformation fail, according to the study, was that they the organization didn't actually know what digital transformation was. And I bring that up as a way of sort of what you just said about you know the importance of knowing where you're going. L like I think a lot of people jump on bandwagons. Like we need some of that. Like everybody else is talking about it. We need to be talking about it too, without necessarily the clarity of well, what exactly are we after as an what people need to th think about also it's almost like cyber. Like it's not it's not a one-time event that you're gonna fix it and then you're done. <laughs> right. right. This is like a this is now something you have to think about as almost like continuous learning, continuous change. Right. The pace of change in technology is not gonna stop. No. Right. The curve is just getting steeper and steeper. And so this is more about creating an organization that is fit for purpose for the future to be able to continuously evolve right. and try to take advantage of the pace of change rather than thinking about. So the old notion of like, you know, pick, pick 
a, an endpoint destination and say, that's the design we're working towards and then put a roadmap together to get to that design. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that model works anymore. Because right. We don't know what, what the future holds and the pace of change in technology is so dramatic and so accelerated that it's more about creating an organization that allows you to continuously adapt right. so that you can take advantage of technology. And I, I think, you know, we're in the early stages of a lot of these technology, technological advancements, and it's impossible to know where they're going to take us. But what I do know is that you need an organization that's going to allow you to continuously adapt to take advantage of the changes. Well, it's funny that you say that because that was the word I was going to use, which is adapt adaptability, like that, that any entity in today's world, because the pace of technological change is so profound and, and it's, it's never going to lag. It's only going to accelerate. That and that's all, why I think you know, I'm not playing to your, your your podcasts, you know, insert human, but it, it really is about, you know, figuring out how to bring together your human assets with the technology, with people that really understand the technology. Like that's more than anything we talk about is how to bring together people that really understand the technological changes that are happening or the next frontiers of technology. And frankly, those may be people that aren't in your legacy organization. Those may be people that are part of a broader ecosystem. There, right. you know, innovation happens on the fringes, as we know, right? It's right. in fintechs and it's in small little academia all over. So it's, it's how do you how do you get a window into the innovation that's happening on the fringes, and then create in your organization people that understand how to put those innovations in the context right. of your business or their business and therefore figure out how to take advantage yeah. of it to change your business. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the, on the earlier point, I think you, but you and I both are, are, are saying the same thing or that ultimately the word transformation will go away. That it won't be a thing anymore. It will just be a way of operating. And I think that applies not just to banks and hospitals and schools, I think it applies to all of us, even at an individual level. The second point, which you've been making, which I totally, totally resonates with me, is this idea that part of the transformation task is to move from these monolithic, discrete ivory tower propositions, including banks and hospitals and schools, into a more integrative, you know, networked proper value proposition where, you know, there's more, as you said, an ecosystem, an ebb and flow of capacities, competencies, but that requires back to the human thing an open-mindedness and a risk amenability. You know, I think, as you know, I worked at Harvard university for several years and it's an ivory tower and, and it, you know, they try to be open and they try to be innovative, but the way it's structured it's not it, it's it's not an easy place to integrate into, and and so I th I would imagine for the 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 banks that you guys work with that that idea of an ecosystem makes perfect sense. The the ability to do it can't be easy. I mean, <laughs> right? Well, and that's true because that, that just like Harvard University, most large financial institutions have legacy constructs that are not really conducive with trying to look at the world through this new technology lens, right? So they have siloed, you know, banks and financial institutions are famously very siloed around either product silos or functional silos like finance and risk and compliance and, and 
technology is something that's over here, right? right? Because the normal way of doing things was technology would sort of, you know, figure out what with the business, what projects need to, need to be done and then go off and build something for three years and come back and say, here, it's done, right? So this notion of everything having to be iterative or much more fluid. And, you know, many of our clients are moving into agile, you know, agile types of methodologies now, which are these, you know, scrum capabilities. We have business people and technology people and frankly, maybe ecosystem partners that are all working together to solve problems, leveraging new technologies on a repetitive uh, try, fail, try, mm-hmm. succeed, try again kind of basis, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to move to different business models as well that and many of our clients are starting to do this now that think about their business horizontally, right? So think about end-to-end business processes that result in serving a client or producing some output. And then how do you bring to bear all the resources across the organization on a horizontal basis that support the the delivery of that outcome through a process as opposed to these functional silos. So I think in many ways, this tra- this transformation, if you want to call it that, or this new way of operating is going to fundamentally change the way over time, most large organizations in finance are organized. Somebody said to me recently that, that the financial industry specifically, I mean, if I, if it was a horse race between the financial industry the healthcare industry and the education industry in terms of which one was trying harder to transform faster. I would actually put the, I'd put the banks at, at the top of the list. I, I don't know if that's, I have no data to support that. This, this, this is an observation, but somebody was saying to me, they would move a lot faster if they weren't, if their financial performance was suffering. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, you know, I mean, what, this is a purely qualitative question. Like, do you feel like the industry is moving fast enough? I think my first comment, as you said, that was it goes back to what I've said before about the short term versus long term focus. And I would say that, you know, that's been honestly, that's been one of, in my view, the positives of the pandemic from an industry transformation standpoint that to me, pre-COVID, the two biggest drags on the pace of transformation in financial services were consumer adoption, right? Because people weren't ready for a lot of these things yet. And it was this short-term, long-term, like, okay, you know, the business model works, we're making a lot of money. We don't really need to change that quickly, right? Sure, we're getting pecked at from the bottom by fintechs who are starting to take some of our share, but, you know, the business works, we're making a lot of money. Then COVID comes along and, you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention, right? All of a sudden you have, you have no choice. The only way you can interact with your employees, your customers, your counterparties is remote, right? So it created an overnight priority, top priority to figure out how to leverage technology in ways you had never before to um, to do business. Right. And so the pandemic clearly lit a fire under this whole phenomenon of leveraging technology, <clears throat> excuse me, and it was out of necessity. And that has now created a tipping point. So pre-pandemic, you know, I used to talk about the fact that like we're going to reach a tipping point where, and I thought it would be around customer consumer adoption, where people would require the banks to accelerate their investments or else the banks would fear a real threat from 
the fintechs nipping at their heels. And that, that tipping point would be driven by consumer adoption. The tipping point was driven by the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic created the need to do everything electronically, right. and that has now accelerated yeah. this whole transformation dramatically. Um, so, so you know, I think your comment about you know, the, the financial um, challenges associated with this were certainly true pre, pre-pandemic. I don't think I, I think now it's just a question of you know how much money can you divert into making these transformations happen at what pace. But I think everybody understands that it's, it is the future. It's what we have to be investing in. Everybody is moving in that direction. It's just, how are they doing and at what pace are they doing? Right. You know, my, my personal anecdote about, about the pandemic impact, uh, not on banking, but on healthcare was for, you know, whatever the last 30 years I've been going to the same primary care practice and completely non-digital the concept of telehealth, what? Like, you know, by the way, the practice is part of a major Boston hospital system. And lo and behold, COVID hits. And within three months, they have a telehealth option. (laughs) Think about Chris in the financial industry for how many years were we told that, you know, to to close mortgages or to bind insurance policies, all these things you needed quote wet signatures, right? What, right. what happened to the wet signature requirement, right? We, we do everything now through digital signatures, through Zooms, you know, the notion of notaries, right? I mean, there are all these legacy requirements that have been embedded in the way that we transact or financial or do financial transactions that have gone by the wayside, again, out of necessity. Right. And that has allowed or facilitated or accelerated this whole transformation in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, uh, you know, we're, we're basically talking about the impact on, on what happens, uh, how environmental conditions can impact a, a bank's or the financial service industry's approach to to how it does what it does. You know, there's this this other environmental factor that I'd love I'd love to get your two cents on and how it's impacting the way the way the the, the industry is thinking and behaving. And, and that's the environmental factor of climate. And and I know you do. You've done a lot of thinking in this. You do you do talks about this. Like how how is the industry getting its head around the consequences of climate change? And 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 it's not just impact on the industry, but it's impact on society. You know, with the industry being such an important pillar to society. Like how, how are you seeing your, your clients? You know, begin to wrestle with this. Yeah. I, I think that um, there's been a fundamental shift in the way the industry has thought about its role in the climate um, ecosystem, if you will, that has really happened relatively recently. So I recall going back to um, Davos 2020, I guess it was, um, where, um, you know, in Davos 2020, since so January of 2020, the, the topic at Davos that year was clearly climate, right? Greta Thornburg spoke and everybody was talking about climate. And I recall listening to many in person, many leading bankers uh, who lead some of the largest financial institutions in the world. <clears throat> and the common refrain was largely our role in the climate um, ecosystem is to facilitate for our clients, right? So as our clients think about how 
they're going to transform in the wake of the things that they need to do to be good climate citizens. Our role is to help facilitate them. So give them access to capital, give them access to liquidity, et cetera, whatever the case may be. Hmm. And, and I would say that that has been the position of many um, leading organizations in the industry for a long, for a long time, for, the, for, you know, for almost two years. And really coming out of COP26, um, just you know, a month or two ago, you saw a fundamental shift. Um, because as, as you all know, I mean, look, financial institutions don't have big carbon footprints, right? They don't have big factories. I mean, they have office space and they have airplanes and they travel a lot, but they're not, they don't have big carbon footprints, right? So, so for them to be net zero um, is not a massive, massive um, um, uh, heavy lift for them. The real challenge is how do they help facilitate everybody else in the world, right? And, and really the fundamental shift has become that almost all of the leading financial institutions now are taking the position that not all, their, their role is not just to facilitate for their clients, but actually to be much more active participants in this process, right? So um, it starts with, you know, the way they invest or understanding the carbon footprint. So you think about investment management firms now that understand the investments that they're making and they're thinking about carbon footprint or net zero from the perspective of their investments, not just their own operations. A bank is thinking about net zero from the perspective of all the loans that they have and, and, and what is the carbon footprint of their entire client ecosystem. And therefore, how do they start to think about helping their clients achieve their net zero goals, um, but actually report on their net zero or carbon footprint as a portfolio, as opposed to just them as an organization. Right. So, so the, the mindset has changed pretty dramatically to what's our net zero for our ecosystem, as opposed to just, you know, we have net zero as a, as an occupier of real estate and we're going to sort of just help our clients meet their goals, but we're not going to track it. We're not going to really take responsibility for it. So the industry is taking a much more active position now around how do we, how do we measure the net zero or the carbon footprint impact of our entire quote ecosystem, which includes all the organizations that we interact with, that we lend to, that we facilitate for, and take responsibility for helping that entire ecosystem meet their their net zero or, or carbon um, abatement requirements. So it's a very fundamental shift that's happened relatively recently. Now that's not true of every organization. I mean, some have been in this place for a long time, but there was an agreement coming out of COP26 where you know 100 of the top financial institutions all agreed collectively the net zero alliance, the you know, banking net zero alliance, where they all collectively agreed to take this approach, if you will, to how they think about net zero, which is fundamentally different right. from, any of, from the way they've approached it in the past. What's your sense of the, uh, the impetus for that shift? Like, as you said, it was pretty dramatic from we're just here to facilitate other others in their efforts to we're actually want to take more of a lead. Like, was it just sort of, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it's been a number of 
very vocal, you know, leaders and CEOs and, and who have, you know, convinced the industry collectively that they have an important role to play. Um, that frankly, for most industries, to your point before, to most industries are going to have to make significant investments in supply chain, factories, infrastructure, to meet difficult net zero requirements. And that that requires money, it requires capital, it requires liquidity. I mean, the financial institutions need to be an active participant in this process. Right. Um, and, and, and actually a, an active facilitator, I mean, not just a passive facilitator, not just saying, oh, when our clients come to us, we'll, we'll help them, but actively going to your, their clients and saying, we know you need to change, here's what we're gonna do for you. Um, so I think I think it's 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 a recognition by a number of senior leaders in the industry that this is not going to get done without the capital and liquidity that financial institutions have to bring to bear on the problem. Um, and and they've all come together to understand that it's a critical part of, of, of yeah. what needs to get done. So. You know, as you know, I'm I'm. I'm- I'm writing my my book, uh, Technology is Dead, and it's it's a capture of uh, how technology is, has changed the world, both for the good and maybe not so good. And one of the things I spend a lot of time talking about are are the emerging existential threats with, with climate at the top of the list. And that faced with these threats, that the systems that we have, the governing bodies that we have, are not really well suited to deal with global existential threats. And therefore, we have to look for other kinds of leaders to to combat the threats. And I call out specifically the leaders within the financial service industry, the bank or the healthcare industry and the education industry. Like, and, and what's interesting to me about that is I think historically, back to legacy, these pillar industries have been reactive industries. You know, if if I'm an educator, my job is to educate your child when your child shows up at my door. If I'm a hospital, my job is to treat you when you show up as a patient. And if I'm a bank, my job is to lend you money when you need it. I mean, it's, 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 it's an important function, but a reactive function. And I think part of what's happening is as we move to this global independent, interdependent world faced with, you know, existential threats, that these 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 pillar industries have to move into a more activist, proactive, societally responsible. I, I don't I, I don't know if you if you disagree with that, please disagree. No, I no, I, I actually agree, Chris. I mean, you know, and to me, it, it's almost the real execution of a, a term that we've been talking about for a long time, which is stakeholder capitalism, right? So, right. you know, it's it's but we've been talking about it for a long time, and you know, you could debate or argue whether. The financial services industry has really aggressively taken to heart that notion um, historically, but I think more recently it absolutely has. Right? It's about you know we we have a we we have a role to play, you know, and, and our value our our approach to creating value is not just to our shareholders, but it's to our employees, to the communities we serve, and to the broader societies that we participate in. That. You know, the, the, the financial institutions, I think, have come around to the fact that they will be successful if the ecosystems that they operate in, broadly speaking, are successful, right? Right. And if they have a critical role to play in ensuring the success of those ecosystems, an ecosystem, very broadly speaking, societies that they operate in, 
communities that they operate in. And so I think actually there's been a, maybe that's another, another positive um, outgrowth of the pandemic, but this notion of people being more sensitive to how do we play a positive role to help the entire societal ecosystem uh, uh, operate more effectively. And I think financial institutions, I mean, there are a number of, you know, very high profile CEOs who have obviously been writing about this and talking about this for a long time. Um, but I think the industry at large has, has certainly embraced this much more over the last few years. And yeah. I think it's a very positive development. And it's certainly very timely given the discussion about climate. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about how the Omicron variant coming out of South Africa so, so visibly just underscored how interconnected, you know, that little yeah. anecdote, like we are all, and then immediately it was everywhere, you know, like we are, and this idea that we're not connected or that we can go to this sort of nationalistic close the border place is so profoundly uh, uh, naive, I guess. I, I, I'm mindful of the time here, and I, I did want to get back to a topic that you and I talked about recently, um, which is uh, which is still a hot topic coming out of the pandemic, and that's this whole question of the future of work. And you know, there 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 are some out there that are convinced that urban areas, major cities, will become um, uh, deserted, and you know, um, all the office towers will 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 be empty and that nobody's ever going to go back to work ever again. Uh, and then there are others on the other, other, other side of that argument. Um, I'd love to hear your point of view of, of what you, how you think uh, all this is going to unfold over the next couple of few years, uh, particularly in the, in the, in the financial sector, but more broadly, how do you think the, what do you think the future of work and, and particularly this yeah. question of hybrid remote, uh, how do you think that unfolds? Well, we were certainly, I think, headed quote, back to something that was closer to the, to normal, if whatever normal is, or at least go hybrid before Omicron hit here in New York, where I live. Um, so taking a little bit of a step back, but um, look, I, I think that certainly we're not going to go back to where we were in the past, right? That the 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 new normal is going to be different than where we were in the past, um, and and so I firmly believe that the future will be some sort of hybrid model, and I actually firmly believe that it will evolve to being roles-based, right? That there are certain roles in any large organization that need to be in person. Right. And there are other roles that actually don't really need to be in person or, or they need to interact in person infrequently, occasionally, but they could be done largely remotely. And so um, to, to me so far, most large organizations have, have painted a very uh, broad brush around either back to work or not back to work uh, because they've just been trying to deal with large pop employee populations and, and just trying to take a, a broad view about you know, either getting people back to work or not. But I absolutely believe that we will evolve to, to a hybrid model that will be role-based. And the role-based calculus, if you will, is around not productivity. I mean, everybody talks about productivity. Okay, are people more productive at home? Are they more productive in the office? You know, I don't think I don't think productivity is the issue. I think we've proven that people can be as productive remotely. The real issue to me, <clears throat> the, the two real issues to me are around innovation and culture, right. or innovation, culture, and mentorship. 
when I talk to some of the clients that I interact with at very senior levels in financial institutions, their biggest concern is innovation, right? Are, is, are they losing their edge on innovation because innovation doesn't happen very easily in this meeting, looking at a computer screen. It happens with people really sharing ideas and bouncing ideas with a whiteboard. And, you know, for all the, for all the you know, investment that's been made in technologies that we all use today, I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people that believe that innovating by looking at a computer screen with five or six or eight other faces on it is a good replacement for, you know, sitting in a conference room and right. writing on a whiteboard and coming up with ideas together. So <clears throat> innovation is a real concern for most organizations as they think about remote work. The second is, is, mentorship culture um you know basically many of the roles in financial services are are roles that people understand and evolve to through mentorship through observe observation they watch people that have been doing this for many years and they learn through observation they learn by spending time with people who mentor them and teach them and again that that doesn't happen no. In this medium, I mean, that's a big issue for us in our business. Ours is very much a mentorship type of business where people grow and learn by working as parts of teams and senior leaders and you know, partners in our business, put their arms around younger people and teach them. And, and, and that, again, doesn't happen, um, again, through this medium. So, so those, to me, are the real reasons <clears throat> why we will go to hybrid models, uh, because organizations will realize that they are losing their edge on the innovation side and on the culture side if they right. are completely remote. And I've been quite surprised, honestly, by some organizations that have come out, I won't say who they are, but have come out um, pretty steadfastly to say, look, you know, our people can work remotely forever and we're going to go to 100% hybrid. And but that may work. That may work fine if you're a technology company because everybody's looking at a computer screen anyway, but I wonder whether innovation is really going to happen, even in a technology firm um, when everybody's remote. Um, and so yeah, yeah. anyway, so I, so I think those are the big issues. And then I, I think the other point is about then what does it do to office space? There's no question we're going to go to different types of open office constructs. You know, we, we in, in professional services have been using, hoteling models and open office space models for years. But I think the notion of legacy offices and legacy fixed space is going to really go away. And much mm -hmm. more, we're going to have <clears throat> these hybrid office concepts or constructs where people can come and go and plug in and mm -hmm. be much more flexible, fluid office models as well. Yeah. You know, there's an interesting... Um almost collision, if you will, between this, this push within the industry to transform and not just the banking industry, the all major industries and this claim that the future is remote. I mean, it's sort of just saying, you know, when you kept saying innovation is tough when you're doing it virtually. And, and I've actually read a lot of behavioral science around that. And it's fundamentally true that people aren't good at collaborating creatively online. It's just not a natural environment for it. 
And so this collision is between, you know, we're committed to the transformation of the organization and letting go of legacy notions, technologies, processes, et cetera. And we're going to support remote working, which is going to require transformative capacity. You know, like, right. But look, on the flip side, Chris, you could argue that there are people who have been in jobs for decades that commute an hour or more into cities like New York to sit in a cube and right. do, or an office and do a job, you know, you know, a finance job or a compliance job or some other job where they commute into an office and they sit and look at the computer screen all day. Right. right? So, so there, there are many roles that I think you can legitimately say people don't need to come I into the totally office. I totally agree. Right? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and that's, that's this roles based notion that I'm talking about, which is it, We've been using a very blunt instrument so far because this is all very new, which is everybody back or everybody not back, or right. whatever the case may be. There's a much more nuanced approach to this, which is which roles really require in person for them to maximize the value of the role right. and which don't and start to think about it that way. Which I think makes perfectly logical sense. I, I would say a lot of organizations, that's a very nuanced and sophisticated approach. I think you mentioned blunt objects or blunt instruments, right. like right. that's going to require its own kind of transformation on the part I of how, how the organizations manage, gauge, I, you know, a, a lot of different stuff in there. Um, I, I, I want to, I have to like ask one last massive question. And it involves this whole question of DeFi and crypto and blockchain. And, and there's, you know, there's a view out there kind of like remote working, like central banks are no more, <laughs> you know, it's, we're going to a completely decentralized financial system where, you know, what's your quick take on, on that? Like, what's your word of advice to the listeners yeah on well, how I mean, to process all that. Yeah, there's a couple of pieces. So one, I would say, you know, obviously you need to separate blockchain from Bitcoin and all the all the the, the things that run on it, right? right? So blockchain is a technology. All those other things to me are asset classes, right? right? I mean, and people need to think about it that way. So for many, for, for a long time, but for a long time, there was this intermingled notion of the two, right? right. That blockchain was Bitcoin or what pick your flavor of digital currency or, um, and um, they were intertwined and that's certainly not the case, right? So blockchain is a technology that I think still has great promise to solve a lot of business issues, um, but it's different from asset classes that potentially run on blockchain, but they are, they are asset classes that run on blockchain. Um, as it relates to digital currency or, or, or central bank digital currency, um, I, I think there's, there's a, quite a ways to go here on this one before we know what the end game looks like. <clears throat> you know, there have been some, <clears throat> so, some central banks around the world that have taken a more aggressive approach on this. And in some cases, they've backed off a little bit. I think that there's two issues at play. One is not really clear how to control it and regulate it from a, a broad perspective. So if you make central bank digital currencies available at large to the, to, you know, your, your country ecosystem, how do you really regulate it? How do you manage risk around it? I, I think that's still an evolving notion. Um, I think that the, 
Real big issue is though the distant, the potential disintermediation of the banking system. So, you know, I mean, the, the whole model is set up around the fact that central banks basically um, deploy monetary fiscal policy, monetary policy largely through the banking system, right? right. They make they make right. they make sovereign funds available through the banking system, and the banks go out and they perform a valuable service. They provide capital, they make loans, they uh, right. create a source for deposits. I mean, there's a role that they play that is an important role in society to uh, facilitate the the economy. But it's an, it's, an, is, it's an intermediary role, right? Yeah, it's an intermediary role. But the question is, if you were to take away that intermediary by allowing central bank digital currency, which is a direct interaction between participants in, in the economy and the central bank, you're disintermediating that intermediary. Right. And who then, who then serves that role? Who decides, you know, who's going to decide how loans are made or how capital is allocated or, you know, it's, it's, um, I think that's, that's the big question that I think um, is plaguing the notion of, of central bank digital currency. So, so, I mean, I, I think that everybody is interested in the notion um, and, and mostly they're interested in it because especially in, I think you'll see central bank digital currency gaining more traction in countries where the central bank or the central government really wants to control the, the economy or the money supply very tightly because they can use central bank digital currency as a way to just get control over more of the money supply. So as you have money moving into, quote, shadow banking, right? So, you know, uh, facilities that are outside of the regulatory remit, this is another way to pull more in to the central piece that you control. Um, so you'll see that start to develop in countries that tend to be more centrally managed. Um, but I think for most certainly Western countries, the real challenge is, is what are the, what's the impact of the potential disintermediation of the banking system? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. And how are you seeing your clients navigate these murky waters? Like, are they just sort of. Well, on this one, on this one, I would say they're, they are where we were with um, back to the conversation we were having around climate before they're really in a, facilitation mode. So, you know, they have clients that want to invest in these asset classes. They have clients that want to um, custody asset classes, right? Digital currencies. And so most of our clients are trying to build out infrastructure that allows them to support their clients who want to invest in, in these, these new emerging asset classes and investment types, right? So, right. Right. you know, we're doing a lot of work with clients to think about, you know, how do you create custodian structures to custody mm. digital coins, right? Um, and, mm. and things of that nature. Or how do you create funds that can invest in Bitcoin or, or other um, digital asset classes? Um, so most of them are in the notion of they want to be, they want to be able to support their clients as they're moving into these asset classes and they need to build out the infrastructure that allows them to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm mindful of the time and I need to let you go. Um, so one of the things I try to do on every show is, is end with a, a little bit of advice, a little bit of, you know, something to think about or something to do. And so 
for the leaders of 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 the financial service executives, leaders, people in the financial services industry industry who are scratching scratching their head about transformation, the climate, future of work, the pandemic, DeFi. You know, if you gave, could give them one bit of of comforting advice, um, how to think about it, how to process it, like wh- wh- you know, what's 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 what would you say? I think that the you know, the, the financial um, industry has a very valuable role to play, as we've talked about, and legacy institutions have massive value in the, the clients they have, the capital they have, the data they have, and, and the real challenge is how to think about creating a different kind of organization, as we said before. So think much more about fluidity, flexibility, partnership. I, I really believe that the organizations that are going to be successful in the future are going to be nimble and being able to partner effectively is going to be a core strategic competency that will differentiate winners from losers, winners from losers, the ability to partner and the ability to leverage data. We haven't talked much about data, but the, you know, the move to the cloud, the ability to leverage data, to draw insights that allow you then to better serve your clients. Um, so this is all about nimbleness, fluidity, and that will happen through partnerships. And um, I really believe that that's an underplayed angle in our industry, which is people really thinking about how are they going to be successful through ecosystems and partnerships, because that will allow them to be more nimble and have access to the next generations of technologies that continue to evolve. Well said. And, you know, I, you know to, to my earlier point, the challenges that we face are global. And there can't be challenges addressed in ivory towers. Like we've, I think not just in the financial industry, every industry has, has to figure out how to partner, how to integrate across, across competitors, other industries, different with customers, like this, this sensibility of the, of the past of, you know, build the, build the walls high and hold on tight. We've got to blow it up. Like, we, we, we you know, um, yeah. So anyway, well, listen, thank you. Uh, that was wonderful. A great, great way to. to thank, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, much appreciated. And and if people want to get in touch with with you, Deloitte, just the Deloitte site is the best way to sort of learn more about what your, your work. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can look on. There's a financial services um, section of the Deloitte website or. Um, they can certainly reach out to me. Bcontry at Deloitte.com is my email. Okay. But, um, please reach out. I'm happy to talk about any of these topics in, in more detail with anybody that wants to have a conversation. Well, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom, Bob, and, and thank you for all that you're doing. You know, as I said at the beginning of the show, that the, the the financial industry is critical to the future of the world and, and the work that you're doing and Deloitte's doing and, and helping that industry transform is ultimately impacting my life and the lives of everybody else. So thank you for that. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.